time is now 6 p.m. Welcome to WORT's local news for Wednesday, November the 29th, 2023. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. In tonight's news, the use of secret email addresses by both current and former governors continues to be a political football. Dane County officials grapple with receiving just one single contractor bid to construct a new county jail. A researcher explains why so many communities across the state still use lead pipes. Plus, our series on working people's lives continues its conversation with a local professional hairstylist. I will... Uh, our favorite septuagenarian revisits headlines from December 1969, and of course, the weather. <laughs> Good evening. This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. UW System President Jay Rothman instructed campus chancellors to consider shifting away from liberal arts programs in favor of more career-specific programs. That's according to reporting from the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's two student newspapers. They used open records to obtain Rothman's email correspondence. He sent the emails in question at the beginning of the fall semester, discussing a report from the Chronicle of Higher Education, which Rothman called, quote, an interesting read. Rothman suggested 16 takeaways for the system. One such takeaway is to not procrastinate making difficult decisions and that, quote, time will not make the problems better, unquote. Rothman also writes that the university should have used COVID-related funding to reinvent the system, eventually paving the way for cuts that he deems necessary. That comes as the UW system is headed toward a dire fiscal situation. Republicans in the state legislature imposed a $32 million cut in the latest two-year state budget. Republican lawmakers have also withheld pay raises for UW system employees. And last month, UW Oshkosh announced plans to cut 216 (coughs) staff positions. Also last month, Rothman announced plans to shut down two more UW system campuses next year due to what he characterizes as rapidly declining enrollment. In an email to WORT Today, spokesperson Mark Pitch emphasized that Rothman's email does not suggest that chancellors move away from liberal arts programs and emphasized that Rothman has repeatedly stated the importance of a liberal arts education. Police officers confronted with people suffering serious mental illness are rarely trained to provide the most appropriate care. Often, the response is simply, as one former police officer put it, to cuff and stuff, that is, to handcuff the individual and stuff them in the back of a squad car. Yesterday, a state Senate committee considered legislation that would provide $2 million for a pilot program giving access to professional mental health specialists through a telemedicine connection. The bill would fund community mental health crisis agencies to assist police departments with this badly needed service. The agencies would develop programs that best fit their needs and capacity. This form of on-site mental health service coaching has been used in a number of states as well as some municipalities in Wisconsin. The bill has passed the assembly and would likely be signed by the governor if it passes the Senate. 
The former Roman Catholic Bishop of La Crosse, Cardinal Raymond Burke, has been rebuked by Pope Francis as a result of his criticism of the more liberal initiatives of the pontiff. He was described by the Vatican as, quote, a source of disunity in the church. <coughs> Cardinal Burke was punished with the loss of a free apartment in the Vatican and related expenses. Last year, Cardinal Burke was removed from his position as a judge on the highest Vatican judicial panel. Most recently, Burke, who was born in Richland Center, criticized the Pope for calling for an assembly that would reconsider the Church's position in regard to people who are divorced and who are LGBTQ. Burke was a cardinal when he was denied when he denied giving communion to Senator John Kerry due to his support of abortion rights. Five Dane County organizations will each be getting a $10,000 grant to address specific social justice issues and inequities, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi announced today. Those organizations include Girls on the Run, which works with youth to provide physically oriented development, the Literacy Network, which provides tutoring in writing, reading, and computer skills, and Madtown Mamas and Disability Advocates, which provides so, uh, support for students with disabilities. Grants will also go to the Tenant Resource Center, <laughs> Center, <laughs> Tenant Resource Center, and Just Dane to provide support to gain and retain housing for recently incarcerated people, and to Unidos to organize groups to support members affected by violence. Capitol High has finally found a home under the same roof. After five decades of existing as parts of various programs in different locations, the city's alternative high school is now housed at the former Hoyt School on Regent Street. Yesterday, students and staff celebrated the new location with a ribbon cutting. The 140 enrolled students at Cap High are offered childcare for their children, smaller classes, and more individualized programs. The size of the new school, built with funds from a referendum, has the capacity to house 300 students. Currently, three-quarters of the students are considered economically disadvantaged, and 12% are English language learners. Combining programs that had previously been run in separate schools on the east and west sides of town means less traveling for staff. A high school counselor, Marianne Matt, told the State Journal, it's really cool. I see my kids every day, not just a couple of times per week. And those are the headlines for this evening. Now to the rest of the day's top stories. The project to rebuild the Dane County Jail has hit yet another roadblock. Only one single contractor submitted a bid to tackle construction, and that bid is over budget by $27 million. Now, county officials are evaluating what to do next. Our producer, Faye Parks, has the story. The sole construction bid on the Dane County Jail project is $27 million over budget. And now, the county board is looking for solutions. County officials issued a request for bids earlier this fall. And, according to leadership at the Public Works Division, they networked with two dozen local contractors. Several of those contractors attended pre-bid facility tours where they took the opportunity to gauge the project's scale. But only Myron Construction submitted a bid to take on the job. In part, Myron's $160 million proposal includes $450,000 to address unsuitable and contaminated soils on the site and $40,000 for painting. They also proposed just over $16 million for contingencies. 
The current facility was built in 1953. Sheriff Calvin Barrett has previously stated that current conditions are inhumane, unsafe, and borderline unconstitutional. The sheriff's office started reallocating inmates to other jails in September of last year. They've also shut down the oldest section on the seventh floor. Yesterday, members of the county board's Public Protections and Judiciary Committee met with Public Works to try and troubleshoot the project's budgetary shortfall. County Supervisor Jeff Weigand of Sun Prairie requested setting up a meeting with Myron Construction to understand why their bid was so steep. We're genuinely trying to understand what went into their proposal, and it might have been time. I mean, maybe they didn't vocalize that initially, but we also don't know because we haven't really asked. In the meantime, Public Works Director Todd Draper says there are several options moving forward. The county can accept Myron's bid to cover the $27 million gap. They can defund other county projects or borrow the additional funds. The second option is to alter the design itself and cut certain costs bringing down the final total. The third option is to start the bidding process over in the hopes that they'll receive additional, and ideally cheaper, proposals. Chuck Hicklin, the county's chief financial officer and controller, says that renewing a request for bids is fairly common in projects of this scale. But Draper, the public works director, says that comes with a level of uncertainty. We'd be basically putting the same project back out on the street, hoping for a different result. It's undetermined, like what contractors are going to have more time or capacity at that point and what kind of interest level we would have. There's just no way to know. Last night, numerous county supervisors said they're concerned that seeking new bids would only serve to drive prices up even further. They pointed out that the $27 million shortfall accumulated in the nine months since the initial construction consultation. Supervisor Dana Pellabon of Fitchburg repeated those concerns to WORT earlier today. She says that the county board is still in the early fact-finding stages, and they are unlikely to make a decision until they've assessed all of the options the Public Works Division presented. So when I say that we are at the very beginning of figuring this out, that is where we are at. Supervisor Pellabon also says, moving forward, her priority is to make sure that folks incarcerated at the county facility are treated humanely. And my hope is that we can find reforms to forego incarceration in a lot of different spaces. So that is actually not my purview, but, you know, those are my hopes. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. What do baseball players and elected officials have in common? No, that's not the start to a joke. Both trades have been known to use aliases to dodge the public eye. WORT reporter Gigi Royko Moore explains. I grew up in Boston, which is where he played with the Braves beforehand, too. And my my father was a Warren Spahn fan as well. My father was left-handed. I always thought that was the reason. He is the winningest left-handed pitcher in history. That's sports journalist Lou Friedman, who literally wrote the book on the baseball player Warren Spahn. Spahn played for the Braves, located in Boston and later in Milwaukee, until relocating to Atlanta. He passed away two decades ago. Friedman says that back in the day, baseball players would commonly use fake names when traveling to protect their anonymity. In the older days, when baseball players and the like were more accessible, and they registered in hotels on the road in their, under their own names, and they used to get phone calls in their rooms you know, from the public who figured out that that was the team hotel. But, uh, but some of them used to use cartoon names and stuff, so somebody would come into a town 
when they're on a road trip and they might choose like Huckleberry Hound as a name to register under and only tell their friends. Trade in baseball players for elected officials and hotel rooms for email addresses, and that's exactly the same situation for the governor of Wisconsin. Earlier this week, conservative news outlet Wisconsin Right Now unveiled in an exclusive that Governor Evers has sent and received over 17,000 emails from a state-registered email address under a different name. The email alias used by the governor? WarrenSvon at Wisconsin.gov. The revelation has been thrown around by the conservative media outlets in the past few days. Today, the issue dominated half an hour on the conservative talk radio host Dan O'Donnell's show. As only a boomer Wisconsinite could, he named his alter ego after the Milwaukee Braves. Great. In a statement to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, a spokesperson for the governor defended the practice, saying that the use of non-public email addresses for elected officials is an established practice and helps combat digital security threats. And it's not without precedent. Former Governor Scott Walker also used an alternate email address, Kevin Scott at Wisconsin.gov. That practice was discouraged by Walker's attorney general, Brad Schimmel, a Republican, also reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. In the past few days, Democrats and members of the media have maintained that the issue is a non-story. That's as conservative news outlets have continued to rail against the practice. And it could also pose a problem for open records. A spokesperson for the governor says that the governor's office regularly provided public records from the alternate email address. Governor Evers addressed his use of an alias email account today at an economic roundtable in Milwaukee, saying that the public could still access records of his emails. This works. The system works. Right. It, it, it is not illegal. People can still access the information they want. So that's, uh, that's the bottom line. Blacking out the, the address is fine, too. Absolutely. Absolutely it is. Still, transparency advocates say the practice isn't great. Bill Leaders is a longtime investigative journalist, defender of open records, and president of Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council. He was quoted in the Wisconsin Right Now exclusive. And Leaders tells WORT Today that while the story is perhaps more juicy than substantive, secrecy in government isn't a good idea. Now they say that they need to have these accounts for security and to avoid them being spammed and all sorts of other horrible things. I'm not sure that I buy it. I don't know that they have demonstrated a necessity for having a separate account to communicate with uh, other public officials. And anytime you do something in secret or that has an element of secrecy, you run the risk of losing trust with the people that you represent. So overall, I don't think it's a great idea. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that the Warren Svahn email address is now defunct. Lou Friedman, who wrote the biography of Warren Svahn, has a few other sports players if the governor is looking for a new email address. Next thing you know, the governor will choose either Don Hudson, the all-time Packers star from the 40s, or Paul Hornick, the star from the 60s. So watch out for that email address, Wisconsin voters. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Gigi Reiko-Mauer. Time is now 6.20, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
A recent report from the Wisconsin Policy Forum, a nonprofit research organization, found that many municipalities throughout the state still rely on lead pipes to deliver residential water. That's despite severe health consequences associated with ingesting lead. Our reporter Ella Saff sought out one of the authors of that report, Tyler Burns, to learn more. This November, Wisconsin Policy Forum released a report on Wisconsin's usage of lead service lines to deliver drinking water to its residents. Ingesting lead is harmful to human health and can inhibit brain development and lead to diminished intellectual capacity. Despite the Environmental Protection Agency banning the use of lead pipes as water mains in 1986, at least 92 communities in Wisconsin still rely on these lead service lines. With me on the line is Tyler Burns, researcher for the Wisconsin Policy Forum and author of the report. So I want to start by asking what cities in Wisconsin have the most lead service lines still in use and why haven't these pipes been replaced? In terms of the total number of lead service lines, Milwaukee is by far the most. They have almost 70,000. And then Racine, Kenosha, Wauwatosa, Oshkosh are kind of all in the neighborhood of five to 10,000. And so where you see these is places that have older central cities where the number of lead lines, they, they were built when they were still using these as a common way of connecting water mains to houses and businesses. And interestingly, Milwaukee, Racine, they have a lot of them. But if you look at by percentage of the total lines, we see some other communities, some smaller communities, and this is the number of water service lines that are made of lead as a percentage of the total number of water service lines. And so that's where you see communities like Shorewood, Wifus Bay, Schofield, um, Walworth, Wausau, Two Rivers. So some of these smaller communities, but again, that have older downtown areas, older residential areas, that's where you're seeing a higher percentage of that. We thought that was kind of an interesting thing to highlight is that, yes, there's a large number of them in places like Milwaukee, Kenosha, Racine, but this is a statewide problem. Anywhere that there's a downtown that was built in the you know 20s to 30s, that sort of place, residential areas that were built back then, you're going to see a few lead service lines. And why haven't these pipes been replaced? Is it because of the age of these communities? There's a number of reasons. I mean, first and foremost, the water that comes through the taps generally meet uh, EPA requirements. And so the communities have been able to manage the lead that actually comes from these pipes and gets into tap water through different approaches. Some have you know, used additives that slow the process of corroding the lines and getting the lead into the water. And so they've managed it over time. Second, the cost. These are, you know, it's a big infrastructure project. If you replace these, you're tearing up people's front yards. You're also likely tearing up streets, maybe other sewer pipes, you know, damaging existing water infrastructure. And so the cost of a project can get pretty high pretty fast when you're doing this sort of thing with infrastructure. And then finally, the ownership of these pipes is sometimes kind of funny. So there's one connection that goes from the water main, which is how the water sort of gets distributed around the city, to the house. But that pipe that connects those two things is often split in ownership between the water utility and the customer. And so that made it difficult, especially in the past, to say, you know, not only are we, the water utility, going to undertake a costly project, but then we're also going to give a big bill associated with this project to the customer because they're technically the owner of half of this pipe that we're going to replace. Your report mentioned that coating the inside of lead pipes with phosphates can slow the process of lead leaking into drinking water. Is treating mm -hmm. these service lines with phosphates seen as the first option before replacing them altogether? And why isn't treatment a sustainable long-term solution? That's the first option. 
it's not necessarily a sustainable long-term solution for a couple of reasons. Number one, it is only temporary. It does allow some of the lead to end up getting into the water. It doesn't completely solve the problem. It really slows the problem down. Second, putting these phosphates into the water, that causes then water quality issues once the water has to go through the sewage treatment plant and back into the surface water. Uh, phosphorus is a, is a major surface water pollutant. And so essentially you have to pay to put the phosphate in and then you have to pay to pull it back out. And then finally, you know, I, I think Flint, Michigan really highlighted this point, which is changes to water chemistry or disturbances of the lead pipes through other construction work can cause the coating to flake off, can cause it to dissolve. And so you can have massive issues in, in some cases if there's if there's these changes. And, and while those big issues are unlikely, there's still a, a risk. And so that's why over the long term, the permanent solution is to remove these things from the system. I understand that Madison finished replacing all of their lead service lines in 2012. Mm -hmm. I was wondering Mm -hmm. what the replacement process looked like for Madison and if the process would be similar for a larger city like Milwaukee. Madison was kind of a special case. They were one of the early leaders in this. They they went around and proactively replaced the service lines. But the big difference between Madison and Milwaukee is simply the scale. So Madison had about 8,000 lines that were replaced as part of this big push to replace all the lines. They did, you know, the bulk of that in the early 2000s. Milwaukee has nearly 70,000. And so, you know, since 2018, Milwaukee has replaced 6,000 of them, uh, a little more than 6,000 of them. You know, that's most of the way finished for the the Madison project. And that's really just a a start to what Milwaukee has to deal with. And so, you know, the process in Madison was kind of a trailblazer. They used some special funding sources, including renting space on water towers to cell phone towers to defray some of the costs associated with replacing the customer's lines. But again, it's, it's just such a different scale that it's hard to really sort of use one as the model for the other. How long must someone be exposed to lead before seeing it affect their health? And is 20 years a quick enough schedule or a doable schedule for Milwaukee? So on the first point, I would defer. I don't know toxicity of lead. I know that there's no safe blood lead level, especially for children. But beyond that, I, I, that's outside my area of expertise. I will say, again, because these things are managed and because of the cost and because it's a, a very large infrastructure project, I think 20 years is a reasonable timeline, especially given, you know, there are other priorities, even within lead. I, I know lead pipes are a big pathway, but lead paint is also a big pathway into children's bloodstreams. And so you kind of got to weigh doing them both is a reasonable thing since you have limited resources, picking your battles. And I think, you know, a 20-year time horizon is reasonable. I think if they get replaced faster, that would be great as well. But but a challenge of this size, I think it's, it's reasonable to make a plan like that. Well, those were all of the questions I had. Is there anything else you would like to add? Any highlights from your report? Anything you found particularly interesting? I guess the one interesting thing is that there's pretty good data on how many lead lines are out there. Some cities have a very precise estimate based on the records that they have or actually going out and checking the customer side of the lines and seeing what the materials are. But there's also a lot of places where there either isn't any data or they have very limited data on what the problem is that's out there. So EPA is pushing for a report across the country for local governments to report a, a precise estimate of how many lead lines are out there in these communities just to make sure that we have a detailed sense of how many lines are out there, what the scope of the problem is. So within the next year or so, we should have an even better picture of how many lead lines are out there and what needs to be replaced in the future. 
the other highlight is this had been a problem that was kind of lurking out there and there wasn't really much done to address it. And you know, starting in 2016, 2017, at the state, local, federal level, it got a lot of attention. And after getting a lot of attention, you know, there's investment in it, there's change in policy. And so we really see a rapid increase in the pace that these things are being replaced uh, over the last five years. You know, that's, a, again, a positive development um, where we identified a problem uh, and took action to, to address it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Tyler. Yeah, I appreciate the interest. If there's anything else you see that you want to talk about, uh, just let us know. Absolutely. Will do. That was Tyler Burns on the line with me, researcher for the Wisconsin Policy Forum and author of a report on Wisconsin's usage of lead service lines. time is now 6.32 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. On this edition of Madison's Backbone, feature contributor Riley Cutright has more insight from Megan, a professional hairstylist. Megan has advice on how to get started in the career and some tips on getting hired. But do you have to be a people person to thrive behind the chair? Megan has the answer. Your hair, you know, at least this is the way that I feel. I feel like it can really make or break my self-esteem. And um, I do tie a lot of my personal identity to my hair and the way that it looks. A community is a unified body of individuals sharing something in common. Over a quarter of a million people call Madison, Wisconsin their home. Have you ever wondered about the secret to Madison's vibrant and unique community? Well, I have the answer for you. Workers. This segment features the working voices who undeniably strengthen and brighten Madison's community on the daily. I am Riley Cutright, and this is Madison's Backbone. This week on Madison's Backbone, we dive a little deeper into Megan's world as a hairstylist. We discuss what doors can open for an individual once they get their cosmetology license, how to handle hair in a respectful and cleanly way, and the myth that being a people person is a prerequisite for this profession, and more. People's hair is like very strongly tied to their identity. I mean, do you feel like you see that being true with the clients that you have? Absolutely. And, you know, that's probably one of my favorite parts about doing hair. I think that your hair, you know, at least this is the way that I feel. I feel like it can really make or break my self-esteem. And um, I do tie a lot of my personal identity to my hair and the way that it looks. I think that if someone someone were to come up to me and shave my head, you know, I would be, (laughs) I would be very distraught. (laughs) And I think that, you know, helping people to be able to express themselves with their hair is just an amazing feeling, especially I I really like doing a lot of kind of creative cuts and color. So being able to give that to people is really great. I think also um, one thing that's really cool about my job is I get to just meet so many different people and just really, you know, you have maybe they're in your chair for 45 minutes, maybe they're there for a couple hours. You get to really chat with them, pick their brain, and not everybody wants to talk, and that's awesome too, but some people you really just get to learn a lot about them, and you 
we'll ask them about their work and you get to like learn a lot about all these different random careers, which I think is really cool too. Would you say that you're a people person? <laughs> I would say I'm a cat person. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I don't know. I I like people, but I also consider myself to be very introverted. So I definitely will be kind of like socially drained at the end of the day. But I do really love just chatting with people and getting to know people too. Yeah. So you're saying you don't have to be extremely extroverted to be a hairdresser. So for all of the people who are maybe considering a career shift, you don't have to be an extrovert to work this job. If this is an interest for you, you can just pursue it. Yeah, I I definitely don't think you need to be an extrovert. I mean, I'm I'm most certainly not an extrovert. I do think that you need to have a certain level of social skills and you need to have a definitely a level of social awareness, especially um there's just, you know, sometimes people don't want to be super chatty in the chair and I think it's good to be able to kind of hone in on that and figure out who wants to chat and who doesn't. And for the ones that do want to chat, like you you got to be able to engage with them and kind of build that relationship, but I I think that if you're introverted, you can definitely do it. Do you think that you and other professionals in your area of work get enough credit or enough recognition from people in the community? I definitely feel like I I don't feel like I need necessarily more recognition or anything. But I think one thing that's kind of interesting is I don't know if people realize how much goes into the job and how much knowledge and expertise you need to be really good at what you do. You know, you'll see stylists at all these different price points and that's it's typically priced based on experience and skill. But really, like there's a lot of knowledge that goes into that because for example when we graduate from school like you will learn a lot of things at school and you'll you'll learn you know the basics and how to do stuff but you don't graduate knowing everything in fact you graduate knowing very little really school they're preparing you for your state boards to get your license and a lot of that is focused on safety and sanitation because you are working with the public you are working with people's bodies and obviously there's legal requirements that go along with that, but it's in everybody's best interest for like the safety and sanitation to be down. But a lot of the skill things that comes from continued education and learning from people who know more than you and just really like taking the time to hone those skills and that's not something that happens overnight. And I think that I don't know if people realize how much goes into that and especially with color like there's so much science to it and color theory and science of you know how the hair shaft is built and (laughs) you know I've seen hair fall apart (laughs) you know we we try to do test strands on any major color corrections or anything like that but like (laughs) if you if you don't know what you're doing you can really you can really mess up hair like hair is not as strong as people maybe think it is it's it's kind of a delicate balancing act so that's why sometimes you'll hear people say like if your stylist says your hair can't handle it you need to believe them because there there are sometimes situations where you you really got to know what you're doing especially with color how much time did you spend being educated So I'm actually licensed for cosmetology, and there's a lot of things that fall under that umbrella. So we do get trained in hair, skin, and nails. We learn a little bit about barbering. We learn a little bit about waxing and facials and um, nails, and we get licensed in all of that. So when you have people who are... 
an esthetician. They're more specially focused on skin and waxing and all of that great stuff. And then same with nails, like somebody who is licensed only to do nails obviously isn't licensed to do the other stuff, but their their program focuses a lot and really specializes in on those specific um, different techniques that they go more in depth on. So if I wanted, I like I could legally go work somewhere where I'm waxing people because my my license covers that. But you just choose to do hair because that's what you like doing the most. Yeah, hair is really my my focus and my passion. How much do you think that your work impacts the general public of Madison as a whole? I like to think that my clients are out there walking around feeling good about themselves and I think that you know each individual person can make an impact especially when they're feeling happy and confident and that's all I can really hope for. Do you have any tips on getting hired for someone who just got their license? Well I would recommend looking at some different salons in the area that you want to work and really kind of um, look at what they offer in terms of services and kind of see if those are the things that you're interested in doing Go spend some time just shadowing in some different places. When I was looking for a job, I was still in school when I started shadowing. If you're able to do it that way, I would highly recommend. A lot of times they're more than happy to let you come by for part of a day and just kind of watch somebody. I think that there's a lot you can learn even just by doing that. And it'll really give you a good feel for the environment of the salon and kind of what a a day might look like there. I think that can be very beneficial in terms of apprenticeship. I know not every salon offers that as an option, so just do a little research, look at some some of the salons that you maybe are familiar with and just see if they offer that program. And I, I can't give much advice on that because I, I don't know too much about the apprenticeship route, but I would say I'm sure they also would be more than happy to let you shadow. I think I I could definitely not recommend that highly enough, just shadowing places. And then do you have any advice for someone who is maybe starting their first job in the salon? I would say the best thing that you can do is just find people that you can learn from. So if you just got hired at a salon, really pay attention to the experienced stylist at that salon and try to get as much knowledge as you can from them because there's so much growth to happen in this industry and I think that there's things that everybody can learn but especially just starting out like that knowledge is so important and I think that you know you can feel like sometimes you're you're growing every day if you're really like taking in all of that information. So you've heard it here first on Madison's Backbone what it is like working as a hairstylist in Madison and thanks for tuning in to the 6 p.m. local news. We'll see you next time. And if no one has thanked you today, thank thank you. you. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, today's 42-degree high temperature was certainly a nice bounce back from yesterday's 23, which uh, incidentally made it the coldest day since the 24th of February. Our 9-degree low temperature yesterday was our first foray into the single digits this autumn season, and the coldest overnight low since back on the 18th of March. 
Uh, but even uh, with these uh, cold, cold couple of days past and the longer stretch of below normal temperatures that we've had for much of the past week, the month as a whole is still running about a degree or so above normal. Uh, we're done with the Arctic air, or at least any uh, prolonged dose of it again for the next uh, couple of weeks, but we'll be trading in that for a more active weather pattern that we can uh, at least hope might bring us some precipitation to make up for our 50% shortfall so far in November, uh, which follows on after three drier than normal months in a row. And we'll get our first crack at precipitation this coming Friday. Uh, if you caught the Monday morning forecast, you will have heard me describing uh, this, this coming storm as looking to be headed probably through the lower Ohio Valley, given model trends at that time. But I also said that its predicted track could conceivably wander back north again. And despite the skepticism that was in my voice as I said that, the global forecast systems and Canadian models have uh, now closed in on a track uh, fairly well further north, up through central Illinois and northeastern Indiana, although the European model remains a little bit uh, of a further south outlier. In any case, though, the storm, uh, as often happens in winter, is going to have very dry air from eastern Canada circulating into it along its northern and northwestern perimeter, which is usually where a lot of the better snow falls, and that dry near-ground environment may produce a sharp cutoff from precipitation, uh, in this case not terribly far north and west of the circulation center down in Illinois, given that the storm will not have a particularly robust supply of uh, moisture altogether, with much of that what's available from the Gulf of Mexico tied up in activity further down to the south and east. So listeners far south and east of Madison may get uh, some light snow out of this Friday morning, but the likelihood uh, drops the further north and west you go. So I'm expecting uh, little or nothing probably uh, here in Madison or parts north, uh, at least unless the track trends again further north. It did surprise me once already. The models do indicate a weak mid-level wave that will be tagging along just behind this storm to the west on Friday evening, which will pass us uh, during the overnight going into Saturday. And depending on its trajectory and whatever upward motion it might provide, that may squeeze out one last uh, little brief shot of snow as we go through that overnight period. And again, this would probably be from Madison and south mostly. We'll get a lull then on Saturday with another rather weaker wave approaching on Sunday. This one's a little bit harder to read on the modeling uh, without any uh, cognizable organization, at least at this point. So I'm not uh, expecting any consequential weather out of it per se, though we may see some light mixed precipitation going uh, into and possibly through part of Sunday. We'll again get a lull with a slightly colder air mass in place than Monday before an Alberta clipper type system heads into the areas uh, from the northwest Monday night into Tuesday. The trajectory of that circulation is uh, still unclear, but it may throw us some light snow, uh, say, early Tuesday before then drawing in another uh, hopefully shorter blast of Arctic air, but it will make uh, at least Wednesday pretty chilly and windy next week. So anyway, nothing uh, big or impactful coming up, but uh, maybe some additional dribs and drabs of snow anyway to replace whatever uh, continues to melt as we go into tomorrow. So back to tonight, the uh, skies will continue to see uh, passing high clouds through the night, but otherwise uh, clear skies and southwesterly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour will let the thermometer settle down to about 30 degrees or so by dawn. 
Tomorrow, passing high and mid-level clouds should allow enough sunshine to get us, I think, back to 40 or so, despite a passing cool frontal boundary, which will be veering winds uh, more west and northwesterly as we go through the day at uh, 8 to 12 miles per hour. Clouds will thicken as we get uh, through the uh, evening hours and into the night, especially west and south, and it's possible that far southern areas, uh, say the Illinois counties or possibly up into Rock or Walworth counties, might get in on some light snow as this first system lifts through Illinois early Friday morning. Temperatures will drop back to the mid or upper 20s as northwesterly winds veer north and northeasterly ahead of the approaching low pressure uh, circulation to our southwest. Friday, the overcast may continue to support light snow for a while south and east of Madison, but uh, most areas should see little more than uh, just a few flakes along with cloud cover that day. And the day will otherwise be kind of uh, chilly and raw with temperatures in the low 30s and northeasterly winds up at 10 to 15 miles per hour. An evening or overnight round of additional light snow is possible, but otherwise uh, clouds will be hanging in as we go overnight and temperatures will drop back to the low 30s on continued northeasterly winds at 8 to 12 miles per hour. And then uh, slightly higher ceilings on Saturday, anyway, may allow temperatures to return to the mid-30s, but uh, east and northeast winds will continue to stay up at 8 to 12 miles per hour that day ahead of our second little system. And that may begin to drop some light snow or mixed precipitation as we go overnight, but I don't think, again, that'll amount to a whole lot. The uh, models are uh, at some loggerheads about when the uh, precipitation might clear out on Sunday, but I think it should end uh, midday anyway. Uh, but probably be turning over to rain uh, early in the day Sunday as uh, winds veer more southerly and uh, uh, temperatures return uh, during the midday hours back to the upper 30s. The temperatures at the moment down here at the station on Bedford Street is 35 degrees. The dew point temperature is 28. Uh, mostly clear over the station, just a few, a few passing cirrus. Uh, southwesterly winds are up at 7 miles per hour, and the barometer is at 29.84 inches of mercury and uh, rising just a little bit over the past couple, couple hours. We go now to December 1969 for radical protest, women's liberation, and the death of a good and important man. Stu Levitan has the headlines from 54 years ago on this week's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, December. 1969. On the second, a massive urban renewal project for the Mifland neighborhood runs into trouble at the Plan Commission as area alder Paul Soglin challenges plans for high-rise condo units. Soglin wants to rehab the existing housing stock through renovation and cooperatives rather than build new. On the sixth and seventh, about 70 women, students, TAs, young professionals, wives, mothers, attend the Women's Liberation Conference at the University YWCA on Brook Street. Workshops include The Psychology of Women, Women and Sex, Family Structure Alternatives, Women and Racism, Images of Women in the Mass Media, Women as Exploited Consumers, and Jobs and Pay Structure for Women. Two legal decisions of note. Flashing your middle finger at a police officer may be rude and defiant, Circuit Court Judge Richard Barwell rules on the 10th, 
but it does not appeal to the prurient interest in sex. So he reverses a teenager's $50 fine for obscenity. Assistant City Attorney Henry Gempler claimed the gesture met the prurient interest test the Supreme Court set for finding obscenity, but Bardwell doesn't buy it. The case arose when a Madison cop stopped a car and warned the driver about a faulty muffler. Afterwards, as the car drove away, the teenage passenger turned around and gave the officer the single-digit salute, at which point he was charged with using an obscenity. The finger gesture does not appeal to my prurient interest in sex, the jurist rejoins. You'll find more than a finger dangling every day right down at the Dangle Lounge. On the 15th, Circuit Court Judge William Sachin overturns the six-month suspension of fire captain and former local 311 Union President Ed Durkin, which the police and fire commission imposed in August for his role leading an illegal firefighter strike in March. Sachin rules that the amnesty clause, which the city council and mayor agreed to in settling the strike, took precedence over the PFC's power to discipline. He puts Durkin back to work with full back pay. And in potential court news, the city council is refusing to pay $8,000 in damage claims against the city arising out of the Mifflin Street block party riots earlier this year. The claims were filed by insurance companies under state law, which makes municipalities responsible for damages, quote, to persons or property by a mob or riot. City attorney Edwin Conrad says the events that first week in May were not the kind covered by the law. On the 18th, Quirky attorney Edward Ben Elson declares his candidacy for Dane County District Attorney at the Wilson Hotel. The 28-year-old co-owner of the No Hassle Head Shop and Clothing Store on University Avenue wears a modish gray Edwardian suit and maroon shirt. Convicted in June of violating the state law that requires motorcyclists to wear helmets, Elson vows to not enforce that and other, quote, bad laws such as those against marijuana and cohabitation. He warns that someday it may even be a crime not to wear a seatbelt. Elson says he's dead serious and will campaign vigorously as the candidate of the American Transcendental Party. And these items from the protest dateline. On the 12th, an action by the Students for a Democratic Society against T-16, the Quonset hut at the corner of Linden and Babcock Drives, used for ROTC instruction, leaves four protesters arrested and four campus policemen injured after a free-swinging melee. About 200 demonstrators then move through the campus, smashing windows in the Army Math Research Center, Bascom Hall, and the Humanities Building, before a vanguard of about two dozen students attack the unguarded Peterson Administration Building, where they throw garbage cans through the large interior plate glass windows and destroy or remove thousands of the hated photo ID cards. The destructive vandalism is attributed to small autonomous affinity groups. The Daily Cardinal applauds the objectives and accomplishments of the march, but decries that poor execution resulted in the, quote, needless and counterproductive property destruction. At 4.15 in the morning of the 28th, Carl Armstrong breaks three windows in T-16, tosses in two one-gallon jugs filled with gasoline, and lights a match. University senior Bryce Larson hears the breaking glass, sees the flickering flames, and calls campus police. 
the Madison Fire Department is able to save the building, limiting damage to about $1,000. Police track Armstrong's footprints to Trip Circle, but lose the trail and never develop any suspects. And on the 31st, Armstrong enlists his brother Dwight to steal a plane from Maury Airfield, where Dwight works, to make a bombing run on the Badger Ordnance Works in Baraboo. About two hours into 1970, Carl drops three makeshift bombs of ammonium nitrate and fuel oil, ANFO. They fall harmlessly into the snow and do not explode. Driving back to Madison, the so-called New Year's gang is pulled over by police and Carl is given a warning for speeding. And finally, economics professor emeritus Harold M. Groves, a founder of the modern cooperative movement, the intellectual and political father of Wisconsin's first-in-the-nation unemployment compensation act and the homestead tax credit for the elderly, and an important supporter of Frank Lloyd Wright's Monona Terrace, passes away in his sleep on December 2nd at the family home, 1418 Drake Street. One of six children of a Lodi farm couple, Groves earned three degrees at Wisconsin. He received his doctorate in 1927 under the legendary professor John R. Commons and later held the endowed chair named in his honor. Groves served in the Assembly and Senate in the early 1930s as a progressive Republican and also as state tax commissioner. He was the chief faculty sponsor and patron of the interracial, interreligious women's cooperative Groves House, which opened at 150 Langdon Street in 1943 with a Green Lantern eating co-op in the basement. A friend of Wright since the 1930s, Groves and his wife Helen helped the architect build the Unitarian Meeting House and were leaders of Citizens for Monona Terrace. Groves served six years on the city's auditorium committee until he was replaced by the anti-Monona Terrace mayor, Henry Reynolds, in 1961. He ran for the Common Council in 1963, losing to veteran incumbent Harrison Garner. Harold Groves was 72 years old. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s for your award-winning, listener-sponsored, septuagenarian-celebrating WORT news team. I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporters were Gigi Royko Maurer and Ella Saff. Special thanks to our feature contributors, Riley Cutright and Stu Levitan. And happy birthday, happy Stu. Happy birthday, Stu. Sorry we missed the free drinks. Katie Jurgella is our engineer this evening. Faye Parks produced the newscast. And Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a great night.